Interestingly, the frequency and incidence of abdominal wall defects seems to be increasing. Yet, tons of controversies still exist on where should the parents deliver, timing of repair, technique of repair. So today we're going to talk about abdominal wall defects covering both omphalocele and gastroschisis with Dr. Jack Langer. Stay Current is a multimedia publication designed to keep healthcare professionals up to date with standards of care and new emerging ideas. Stay Current is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Ian Glenn, and Sophia Abdulhai, and is recorded and produced at Akron Children's Hospital in Akron, Ohio. This is Todd Ponsky from Akron Children's Hospital, and today we're going to be doing a, a podcast on a, a topic that all of us see pretty frequently, and uh, this is abdominal wall defects. We see this in the form of gastroschisis and omphalocele, and there are quite a few controversies. And with us today, we have uh, one of my uh, favorite pediatric surgeons, Dr. Jack Langer, uh, who is professor of surgery at University of Toronto. He's a pediatric surgeon at the Hospital for Sick Children and uh, in the Division of General and Thoracic Surgery. Jack, thanks for joining us today. No problem. So, Jack, uh, I think we, we uh, I don't know when we met, but I know that we've been working a lot over the years because you know you're my go-to person for all the global cast and any event we have because you're always fun for stirring up controversy. Yeah, well, I try my best. <laughs> you're not shy. Uh, but uh, besides being uh, truly one of the the, uh, the leaders in the field, and in, 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 which is interesting, many areas of pediatric surgery, uh, this has been one area that you've had a, a specific interest in. And uh, before we get into this specific uh, area of expertise, I wanted to highlight another area of expertise, and that is you're a musician. Uh, can you tell me what you're doing now and, and what you've done recently with the, in the music field? Well, I started playing music a long time ago when I was like 12 years old, and uh, I took it pretty seriously when I was a teenager and uh, in university. Wrote a lot of songs, played uh, the coffee house circuit in uh, Toronto where, where I grew up. And then when I uh, went to medical school and became a surgery resident, I didn't have much time for it anymore, so it disappeared from my life for about 30 years, and uh, recently I took a sabbatical and uh, started playing again and, and decided to make a CD, so uh, that's just been uh, released in the last month or two, um, and it's 10 songs that, that I wrote over the years. Uh, I, I have a number of people who I've played with uh, over the years, um, many of whom are professional musicians, some who are not, some of whom are actually members of my family, uh, who play on the CD uh, with me. And uh, it's been fantastic. So if you're interested, uh, go to www.jacoblangermusic.com, and you can get more information. Perfect. What's the name of your album? The CD is called Return, which is the name of uh, the title song on the on the CD. But it also represents the the fact that I've returned to uh, making music after so many years. I love it, and that's probably the best lesson out of all of these uh, podcasts is uh, the fact that you've uh, taken control of the real things in life, and I, I think that's wonderful. So congratulations. Thanks. Uh, diversification is not only important in your financial portfolio. It's also important in the rest of your life. Absolutely. <laughs> that's true. All right. Well, let's get back into some uh, not as exciting stuff, but let's talk about abdominal wall defects. So, all right, Jack, let me ask you this. So you're you're in your office and you're you're about to walk into your your pediatric surgery clinic and there's a patient waiting to see you uh and uh she's she's there to see you it's a a 30-year-old woman who has a uh a pregnancy and a prenatal diagnosis of gastroschisis talk to me about what goes into talking to these moms about what to expect and uh what advice do you give them and and how do you manage them well with with gastroschisis, the uh, main issue is that uh, the bowel gets damaged uh, through through fetal life. Um, most of these patients don't have any other associated anomalies, um, and in fact, you know, a lot of times we don't even bother getting a karyotype analysis because it's it's pretty rare. 
um, to have other anomalies or to have cro abnormal chromosomes with gastroschisis. And anytime there's a prenatal diagnosis of anything, I have a number of questions that I ask myself. Uh, will the diagnosis change the location of delivery? Uh, will, the, will the diagnosis change the timing of delivery? And will the diagnosis change the mode of delivery? In other words, do you need a cesarean section? Um, and is there a role for some kind of fetal intervention? And in gastroschisis, um, there is some controversy about some of these issues. Uh, it used to be said that cesarean section should be done on every patient with gastroschisis. Um, because of concern about damage to the intestine during delivery, during vaginal delivery. And some of the early papers actually did show a benefit to cesarean section uh, in these cases. But if you look closely at those papers, the uh, cesarean sections were usually done early. They were usually done at 36 or 37 weeks, and, and that really raises the question of whether it's the timing, an, an earlier timing of delivery that, that gave that benefit, rather than the cesarean section itself. There have been many, many studies done um, <clears throat> that have failed to show an advantage to cesarean section, and I think most people nowadays would not do routine cesarean section. The, the issue of preterm delivery for gastroschisis remains very controversial. Uh, there has not been any, to my knowledge, any large randomized trial looking specifically at the issue of early delivery, and there are lots of uh, retrospective studies, uh, including some that we've published from Toronto, um, some of which show an advantage and some of which don't show an advantage. So I think um, at this point in time, uh, each individual institution uh, needs to make a decision w what their policy is going to be. Um, what we do in Toronto is we uh, deliver them at around 37 weeks, uh, unless they've already gone into spontaneous labor at that point. And we have actually shown that that the normal or the mean uh, gestational age of, uh, of onset of labor is a lot earlier in gastrocesis pregnancies, maybe because they're inflammatory mediators uh, produced by the bowel that's inflamed. Uh, nobody's quite sure why this is. Um, and that's, that's how we, what we've found to be the best uh, approach. The other thing is that we usually uh, induce labor at 37 weeks, uh, which in gastroschisis pregnancies is successful most of the time. Um, many people feel if you try and induce labor at 37 weeks, you're not going to be successful in inducing labor. Uh, and that may be true in, in, a, in a regular pregnancy, but with gastroschisis, we can usually induce uh, labor and do a vaginal delivery at 37 weeks. Hmm. Okay. So just to summarize, uh, no need for cesarean, but... Advisable to induce labor at around 37 weeks. Yeah, that's the approach we take, but but it's not supported by strong evidence. And there are other centers that feel uh, just as strongly that you should not induce labor at 37 weeks, and you should just wait until they go into spontaneous labor uh, and deliver them whenever that is. Um, okay. I, I can't make a strong argument based on the data that that that's that that's wrong. So this is dealer's choice. Dealer's choice. Okay. What about where should they be delivered? Um, I, most of the evidence, including some, some that uh, has been published through the CAPSNET um, uh, database, uh, has suggested that delivery in a perinatal center uh, is beneficial. But again, those data are not supported by you know, proper prospective randomized trials. Um, and it depends to some extent what kind of uh, neonatal support and expertise you have uh, in in the center that you're delivering them. So there are some uh, some maternity centers uh, that are not part of a children's hospital uh, where they are excellent at, uh, at resuscitating these kids and protecting the bowel, and then they have a good system for transporting the kids to the children's hospital where it's going to be managed. And, uh, again, it would be hard to – it's not really an evidence-based thing to say that that, that shouldn't happen. But I think, in general, if you have a perinatal center where you can deliver them in a place where there's a, a neonatal ICU that can take care of them and a pediatric surgeon that can take care of the child, that's, uh, that's probably better. Okay. So this mom that you talked to, the baby's born, and uh, they call you that the baby was delivered at an outside hospital. They wrapped the baby up and brought him over. It's 2 in the morning. Right. How do you 
how do you manage these kids? So I, I would say the first thing is that um, it, it's important for the baby to, during that whole transport pro- procedure, uh, it's important for the baby to be nursed on his side or her side, um, usually right side down. Um, I, we've had uh, some kids who come <clears throat> from neonatal ICUs or from maternity uh, units uh, where they aren't that experienced, and they put the baby on, on his back, and the bowel uh, sort of flops over, and you can often get kinking of the mesentery and ischemia of the bowel during the transport. So that, that would be my first comment. Great. And plus you need a nasogastric tube in every baby, and you need to uh, control the temperature of the environment. And that's, you know, pediatric surgeons take that for granted, but a lot of times uh, the, the people at 2 in the morning who are managing the newborn don't, don't appreciate those things. Okay. So that's number one. So once the baby arrives um, and I have a look at him, my, my first choice is to do a bedside closure, if that's possible. If the, if the uh, bowel is not too thickened and there's, and there's not too much of a peel, um, then it's often possible to put all of the bowel in right at the bedside in one, in one uh, shot. And, and that's been called the Bianchi approach because Adrian Bianchi uh, first described a bedside closure. I don't do what Adrian Bianchi did, which is to use forceps at the bedside to uh, push all the bowel back in. Because I tried that in, in a, a couple of cases, uh, the, it actually we actually damaged the bowel uh, trying to get it all in with a baby that's kind of squiggling around. So what I do now instead is use one of the uh, preformed silos. Uh, I put that in, and um, I then slowly push on it give the baby a little bit of, uh, of fentanyl or morphine, uh, but without intubation and uh, in, in an awake baby with some, you know, giving some dextrose uh, to calm, calm them down. And if you take your time, you can often get the bowel back in with the silo. And then if that happens and the baby looks good and the legs are perfused, um, sometimes we'll even measure intra-abdominal pressure um, and uh, try not to get above a pressure of 20. So if we've got a good pressure and a good baby and everything's back in, then I take the silo off right there and then and put a dressing over it, use the umbilical cord stump um, to cover the the hole and then uh, just put a big dressing on it with uh, duoderm and leave it for about five days and then change it and and let it all kind of contract down and heal in. And uh, when that works well, that's to me the, the preferred technique because you never have to intubate the baby. You don't have to go to the operating room. Um, you get it all in in one shot, and uh, they seem to do quite well. So let me uh, interject a few comments here. First of all, uh, that was a great explanation of, of the, that approach. Um, a few things that I do a little different that I want to highlight. First of all, um, Bianchi, I think, described suturing the umbilical cord mm-hmm. over the he whole did. And uh, I, I, I know the person who taught me was Tony Sandler, who uh, wrote a paper called The Plastic Closure, and, and it may be a little different than what you described, but in that approach, very similar, just no real need for suturing, just the sutureless closure. Is right. that, that's what you do? That's what we do, and that's yeah. actually based on, uh, on Anthony's experience. Yeah. Uh, he, he actually trained in Toronto, but... Uh, so exactly. We, so we think he's great because he trained. <laughs> so uh, he, he's uh, he, you know he's the first one other than Bianchi that took that, that championed this approach and uh, and I and we agree that you don't need to suture that down. So um, it's interesting because uh, Anthony trained me uh, for the last ten years. Uh, that's all I've done unless I needed to do something else. Uh, so um, and it's worked fantastic and. Uh, there was a study, uh, 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 Dr. Uh, I, I believe it was Dr. Baird, uh, who recently published a paper in JPS showing that actually, comparatively, the patients that had what he calls the flap closure mm-hmm. not, did better in every way than those who had a sutured fascial closure. Um, and surprisingly, even umbilical hernias, which is what you would think would be the downside, is that that when you let it close on its own, they actually did not need to go to the operating room as often to have an umbilical hernia repaired later on. Um, 
obviously they have an umbilical hernia initially, but I think that closes most of the time. It does, and if they don't, uh, if it doesn't close on right away, then it, it generally closes just like any umbilical hernia. Most of them close by the time they're two or three years old. Right. So, so I've gone the other direction where I've moved towards intubating, uh, even though everyone sort of says you don't have to. Uh, and I have found, first of all, I think the morbidity of intubating them is low, but I've found it's it's almost, I think, torturing them trying to shove the bowel in, and it's also harder and it takes longer because they're pushing against it. So maybe you can enlighten me on better techniques of non-intubating with sedation, or how do you do it without them pushing all the bowel back out as you're fighting them pushing it in? Um, I think... What we t- try and do is uh, the, is use um, fentanyl or morphine judiciously and um, dextrose, you know, giving them uh, mm-hmm. dextrose to suck on. And it's not always uh, it's not always successful without intubation. I, I I agree with that. And and in fact, some of them come to us uh, intubated from the delivery room because somebody thought that that was a good idea. So I can't you know I can't make a uh, again I can't make an evidence based argument that they shouldn't be intubated, um, and sometimes we do intubate them. Um, and I, what, I've also find, what I've also found is that um, after reducing the bowel in these cases, sometimes they do become tachypnic and their legs look a little, you know, bluish, and uh, so the neonatologist an hour or two later just intubates the kid because they're, they're worried about them. And so maybe we should have just intubated that child before we reduced it. So I don't. Right. Uh, I I I'm not sure that um, that you're not correct. Um, it's but there certainly are some kids that are just rock stable, and they you know if you give them some fentanyl, some some dextrose to suck on, they, it, it goes in. Not too bad. Yeah. What do you say to people who believe that every child should have a silo placed? Uh, unless there's some uh, you know bowel necrosis or s- some other complicating thing, I actually do put a silo on every kid. But I, but sometimes I'm able to take the silo off right away. You know, yeah, but that doesn't it. count. <laughs> so if you're if you're if you're asking me, what a, what do I say to people who say that that every kid should have a staged closure? Correct. I would say that I don't think that's correct, um, and I think the the disadvantage of leaving a silo on for 24 or 48 hours, and in fact we do have some people in my group uh, who do that routinely. Uh, the disadvantage is that the abdominal wall defect gets stretched out and gets bigger, and it takes longer for it to close uh, if you do a, a plastic closure. Um, it gets It's kind of stinky under there. There's more chance that the bowel will re-herniate out. Um, so I, I think that there are disadvantages to keeping a silo on for uh, a longer time. Mm-hmm. And if you have a child who uh, can tolerate uh, one-stage closure at the bedside, I think that's preferable. You know, the the silos that we use, I think, is what you use. We have the Mm -hmm. spring-loaded silos, and uh, the Bentec ones is what we use, I think. And one interesting thing is because of the way they're designed, where the spring goes on the inside, the pressure forces seem to go outward as you push down on the silo. And so the defect becomes larger and larger over time. This is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's my point. So, as you uh, as you do that, even after 24 hours, you have a, a defect that's a lot bigger, and it so it takes a lot longer for it to close on its own once you've reduced the bowel. Great. What do you tell the mom is the incidence of having an intestinal atresia? Uh, it's between five and ten percent. Okay. Um, but I think it's important to differentiate uh, two different kinds of intestinal atresia in gastroschisis. There, there are some babies with gastroschisis where the atresia occurs, I think, very early on. And you can sometimes suspect that because uh, as you follow the children by ultrasound, uh, you can see the bowel gets very dilated, but it doesn't get really thick-walled, and the baby seems otherwise well. And that's probably an early-onset atresia, which is a different thing than the babies where the abdominal wall defect uh, gets very small as the baby grows, mm-hmm. and you get uh, you get not only um, atresia at that point, but you get ischemia of the exteriorized bowel. And in the worst case scenarios, the the majority of the small bowel actually becomes necrotic and disappears, and that's 
what's called vanishing gastroschisis. And that form of atresia is a completely, has a completely different prognosis than the early onset atresia, where the bowel is, is well perfused, but there's just an atresia there. Mm-hmm. And so what is the prognosis of someone with a closed gastroschisis or a vanishing gastroschisis? Well, th- those kids have, in, have short bowel syndrome. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the prognosis for short bowel syndrome has improved dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years because of uh, the development of, of uh, intestinal failure centers and teams and uh, because of the use of uh, better TPN that doesn't damage the liver as much and uh, control of sepsis and all of those things. So, um, But still, short bowel is short bowel in a newborn, yep. and it's still... <laughs> It's still a completely different kind of prognosis than uh, a baby who has a healthy bowel but the presence of an atresia. And uh, there is controversy about how that should be managed. Um, You really have three choices. Uh, One is to repair the atresia at the time of abdominal wall closure. Uh, The second is to just bring out stomas. And uh, the third is just to drop everything back in, not do anything with the atresia, put it back in, and then wait uh, a couple of months and go in and repair the atresia. And uh, there's really not a lot of good evidence, I guess because it's such a rare thing. Uh, there's no good evidence one way or the other, and I, I usually tell people to individualize. Usually when you say individualize, it means nobody knows what the right answer is. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the case, I think, with atresias and gastroschisis. In general, my approach has been, uh, if the bowel looks pretty good and there's not much of a peel and it looks like it's uh, pretty healthy, then I'll just go ahead and, and repair it and, uh, and reduce the bowel at the same sitting. Mm-hmm. But if I have concern about it, then what I usually do is drop it back in. Uh, and sometimes it takes some time, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, the use of silos uh, in a little while, but uh, I'll, I'll put it back in without doing anything. I, I almost never bring out stomas. The only time I've really done that is when there's actually a piece of necrotic bowel there, which you have to resect. And uh, if you have to do that and the bowel is uh, not healthy enough to put together, then stomas are probably the right thing to do. Yeah, and uh, I've had that happen to me a couple times, and I know that's the controversy is where to bring out that stoma. I know some describe using the natural stoma hole, which is the umbilicus, and Mm -hmm. some bring it off to the side. What, What do you do? Um, I, it depends on whether you can get the rest of the bowel in uh, without uh, too much of intra-abdominal pressure. If, if, you, uh, if you can get all the bowel in and uh, it's, not, you know, it's not too tight, then I think the umbilicus is the best place to bring out a stoma. In fact, I tend to bring neonatal stomas out through the umbilicus as a matter of course. Oh, wow. That's okay. my, preferred, my preferred site for You don't find that they prolapse when you do that? I find they prolapse no matter what you do. Okay. So, and the you know prolapse is something that you can usually deal with. Um, I I like the umbilicus because um, it when you close it you've you've got a scar that would would have been there anyway, and it's also a convenient place to put a, an appliance on a neonatal abdomen. It's right on the front and it's pretty easy to to put a put a, an appliance on. Um, if the if the abdominal pressure is too high and you can't get it back in, then you've, then you've got a, a problem. And I, I have on a few occasions actually brought the stoma out through the, through the silo and, uh, you know, left it for a few days until I could get everything back in and then, uh, you know, reoperate on the baby and bring out a proper stoma. Okay. All right, Jack. So you've, you've gotten everything closed and three weeks go by. And the baby still has uh, bile coming from the nasogastric tube and has uh, yet to have a bowel movement. So they've never had meconium. What do you do? I'm making the assumption that you had a good look at the bowel before you reduced it to make sure that there Well, the best you could. It was pretty matted, and it was a big matted ball. Yeah. So, you know, the question is, is this just hypomotility, or does this child have an atresia or or a congenital stenosis? Right. Uh, associated with the gastroschisis. And at three weeks, I probably wouldn't do anything. I usually give it four weeks of, okay. uh, of waiting because three weeks is is kind of average for gastroschisis. You know, we, Agreed. So I, I probably wouldn't start doing investigations at that stage. Okay. Um, there is a question of whether using a prokinetic agent might uh, improve 
the uh, the motility and decrease the period of time that you have to wait. Um, and we've we've been using metoclopramide for uh, for a long time um, in these kids. Um, and there there's actually evidence from I think from a study in the UK that uh, showed that using cisapride um, got the kids going more quickly. But cisapride isn't available anymore uh, for anybody. The nice thing about metoclopramide is that it can be given intravenously. Um, you know, giving a prokinetic enterally to a kid who's got a motility problem doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Um, you don't know how much it's getting absorbed, but because you can give metoclopramide uh, or reg, it's reglan um, IV, you know that they're getting it. But we don't know that it actually works, and we're actually doing right now a uh, randomized prospective randomized trial in our gastroschisis kids to see whether the use of intravenous metoclopramide uh, can shorten the, the period of hypomotility. Now, let's say we get to four weeks and uh, this kid still hasn't opened up. Um, I generally start by doing a contrast enema um, and to see if there's any mechanical obstruction. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you, you get through the colon and it gets up into dilated small bowel and you're, and you're not sure. So you can also do an upper GI to, to try and get the same information. And sometimes if that shows you a, a clear obstruction, um, then you know what you have to do. You can go in there and you can deal with it. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the time it, it still doesn't give you a clear answer. Um, you do an upper GI, it all kind of gets diluted in the dilated loops, and you, you can't be sure whether it's hypomotility or it's a, a mechanical problem. And, and in those kids, I've usually waited another couple of weeks, um, and at around six weeks, if I'm still, if I'm still struggling, the kid hasn't opened up, then I'll, then I'll usually do a laparotomy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll find a mechanical obstruction, and sometimes I won't. What I usually find is a bunch of adhesions, which we take down, and sometimes that helps, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> right. So I don't really have a you know a, a definitive answer for that question, and it's a very challenging situation, especially the you know the parents and the nurses are, you know, you're out to four or five weeks, and they're saying, come on, you got to do something, you got to do something. But right. Uh, you know, it's I think going in too early on those kids is a mistake. Yeah, I agree, and and actually, that's part of my prenatal discussion. Um, that that's a, a chance that uh, that might be there, and I wouldn't do anything for six weeks. That's mine as well. And so really, there's not necessarily a reason to even study them before six weeks if you're not going to do anything. No, it, but, if I, but uh, if I study them at four weeks and I see a clear, narrow area, then I, I would probably go in a little earlier. Than I see. Okay. So, Jack, you're going in there and you, you see the, the, all the bowels out and you see uh, a testicle outside too. What do you do with that testicle? Um, it's usually the right testis, and um, and I just stick it, try and direct it down into the pelvis as best I can, although I have no idea whether it actually goes there. Um, just reduce it uh, while I'm reducing all the uh, all the bowel. And in about half the cases, it finds its way down into the scrotum, which is one of the most amazing things in really the body. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Let's move on to a different type of abdominal wall defect. So what do you tell the the moms that come in with a prenatal diagnosis of omphalocele? So the difference, uh, I mean, there are many differences between omphalocele and gastroschisis, but uh, from a prenatal point of view, the main thing is that there's a much higher incidence of associated anomalies and of chromosomal abnormalities. So I encourage the parents to get karyotype analysis done, um, and we look very carefully for other associated defects. There's also um, some uh, some syndromes that we know are associated with omphalocele uh, that you can test for now, such as Beckwith-Wiedemann. Uh, so we will routinely do Beckwith-Wiedemann testing on those uh, omphalocele patients as well. What do you tell them about delivery and what to expect when the baby's born? So again, you know, I ask, I always ask myself the same questions: mode of delivery, time of delivery, location of delivery. So with with um, omphalocele, I think it's helpful to differentiate between small omphalocele's which don't contain liver and large omphalocele's that do contain liver, because I think they're they are probably different entities. Um, the small omphalocele's uh, 
which is uh, in a counterintuitive way, are actually more likely to be associated with abnormal chromosomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, those are the kids where I particularly encourage the parents to get a karyotype done and to look for other abnormalities. Um, but from a delivery point of view, uh, there's really no rationale for uh, a routine cesarean section or delivery uh, at, uh, at a perinatal center, uh, or, and there's no, no rationale for a, for a preterm delivery in those kids. Um, and from a surgical point of view, they're simple to, uh, to repair. So uh, you know, that's what I would tell the parents. I'd say, you know, the, the good news is that this is not likely going to be a, a problem from a surgical point of view. It would be easy to fix. Um, but uh, there is a higher risk of chromosomal abnormalities, and so we need to make sure we uh, figure that out before the baby's born. Right. If it's a large omphalocele, um, they still do have a higher risk of other anomalies, so you have to do an echo, you have to uh, look carefully with a, with a high-level ultrasound for other abnormalities, um, and we look at their karyotype as well. Um, but in the large omphalocele, especially uh, what we would call giant omphalocele,s um, and there are lots of different definitions for giant omphalocele, usually based on how big the defect is. But I think any omphalocele where there's a lot of liver out should be considered a giant omphalocele. Uh, for those, I think um, most of us would recommend a cesarean section, although that is not really evidence-based. Um, but to me, it just seems to make sense. So we usually do a cesarean section. We don't necessarily deliver them early. Uh, there really isn't much, uh, much evidence for that. Um, and they, I think they should be delivered at a perinatal center because they're clearly going to need a pediatric surgeon and they should be managed um, by a, a team of neonatologists who has experience. One of the things that is associated with giant omphalocele that is very difficult to diagnose prenatally is pulmonary hypoplasia. And that's something you have to talk to the family about. <clears throat> Nobody has really figured out a good way to make that diagnosis prenatally. And some of these kids have uh, pretty severe pulmonary hypoplasia and require early intubation and uh, respiratory support. So for that reason alone, I think it's important to deliver them at a tertiary care center. Mm-hmm. That's a great point, actually, and maybe underappreciated prenatally. Yeah. All right, so the baby's born. Um, let's say the baby's respiratorily stable, doing well, but has a giant omphalocele. Right. How do you approach those? The goal is to get uh, the viscera reduced without injuring the viscera, either injuring them by direct trauma during the reduction or injuring the, the viscera by virtue of increased intra-abdominal pressure. And uh, again, it's the same as with gastroschisis. If you can do a reduction um, in one stage uh, without too much intra-abdominal pressure, then that's the preferred way of doing it. And um, it's, it's hard to know a priori whether you're going to be able to do that. So uh, that's, this is a situation where intra-abdominal pressure measurement, I think, is very, very helpful. Um, there's lots of uh, literature that, that uh, suggests that intra-abdominal pressure monitoring is, is helpful. And, and uh, if you start reducing it in the operating room and you get a, a pressure over 20. And that's, that's the guideline that, that uh, Stuart Lacey put into the literature back in the 80s based on uh, work in rabbits. It was, it was excellent work and then, and then took the numbers he developed in rabbits and, uh, and applied them to a prospective study in children with abdominal wall defects and showed an improved improvement in outcome. So I think that still holds now a, a pressure of 20. Um, and he also talked about an increase in central venous pressure of more than four. Um, and you can, you can measure intra-abdominal pressure either through the nasogastric tube, which is what I tend to do just because it's easier, uh, and, or you can use the Foley and measure uh, intravesical pressure. Um, I think both of them are, are useful. And, and also recognizing that, that the, the absolute number that you get on the pressure measurement isn't as important as the trend of the, of the pressure. So as I'm slowly reducing the bowel uh, or the, the liver in an omphalocele, you know, we're kind of watching the pressure. And if we clearly get up way over 20, then I, I back off. And, so uh, just I want to make sure I'm clear. Yeah. You, you attempt reduction on everybody? No. Um, I, I think if the baby is, 
is full term, uh, has no significant cardiac diseases, um, otherwise looks well. Um, you know, no respiratory issues, no pulmonary hypoplasia. Um, then I then I usually will will attempt a, a a primary closure. Now, there's lots of different ways of of, of doing this. Uh, one way that the Montreal group first described is to actually use the omphalophile sac yeah, as silo. a silo, mm-hmm. um, and you can sequentially ligate the sac over the first few days. And there's no rush to do this because the sac is in, if the sac is intact, then you you know you're not really at any risk in terms of the viscera, the the bowel, the, the liver. So if you can sequentially ligate the sac um, and and get uh, some stretching of the uh, abdominal wall. And sometimes you can go to the OR a few days later and, and accomplish a primary closure. Um, you need a sac that's thick enough, and uh, you need a sac where the, where the umbilical cord comes off from the top of it rather than on the side of it. My approach is different, so I have some questions for you. So it seems to me that I've had not the same experience with, with a sac that was so robust that I would be able to start... Uh, ligating it and tying it, it seems more of a jelly sort of texture until I escarize it a little bit. So have you found that usually it's rugged enough that in the first few days you can start suturing it and ligating it? Uh, Usually we just use um, an umbilical tape um, to to ligate it. And And it doesn't tear usually? uh, Sometimes it's Sometimes you can't, and sometimes you can. You know, it's just. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, but then to... you've got a problem, no? Because if you've tried to mess with the sack and you get a hole in it, how do you manage that? Then uh, you have to take the kid to the OR and uh, and try and try and reduce it or or put a silo on it. Um, if I actually haven't had that experience because wow. okay. because I'm trying to, you know, I don't try to ligate the sack if if it's not clearly going to be possible. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I've never. This is just. This is great for me because this is something I've never done. I across the board, if a baby's born with a giant umphalocele, I escarize all of them and I wait till they're about a year of age and then I go back in and do a closure. So I've never tried to reduce an umphalocele, and I know a lot of people do, and I know uh, what you've described, and I want you to, uh, to do comments on these others, but I know uh, Cristobal Abello in, in South America he closes these by putting a, a duoderm over the sac and sort of pushes it down over time. Have you tried other methods of trying to reduce it? You know, using the, the duoderm uh, is something I hadn't done much of, but uh, some of my colleagues have started to do it, and uh, and I'm actually fairly impressed that they it, they do seem to get it reduced more quickly. It's the same concept, that really, as, as ligating the sac, but uh, you don't have to have a sac that's amenable to ligation. Right. So that's something I, that, that I think you know, may, may be a better way to do it than, uh, than the way I've been doing it. Professor Abello, he's in Colombia, and uh, he, he has a great video on YouTube where he shows exactly how he uses the duoderm to close it. When you, have you ever escarized? Yeah, we, I mean, we've, uh, we do that. So the, the, my indication for using escharotic therapy has been uh, the child who's premature, the child who has bad cardiac disease where you just can't think about increasing their abdominal pressure, the kid with pulmonary hypoplasia, or the kid who's got multiple other uh, anomalies or bad chromosomes uh, where, where it's not possible to, to attempt uh, a closure. So in those kids, uh, we, we do. Or, or sometimes the omphalocele the is just so giant that you just real you just look at it and you realize there's no way I'm going to get all this stuff in here. And also there's uh, a group of kids that have almost a mushroom-shaped omphalocele where mm-hmm. the abdominal wall defect is not that big, but they've got everything out through it and it's it looks like a mushroom. And and those are also you could just look at them and you say oh, there's no way I'm going to get this all back in. That long list of uh, of kids who. Uh, who either are too sick and have medical problems that would prevent you from doing a primary closure, or where the where the omphalocele is so huge, you just realize that you're there's no way you're going to get it all in. Uh, we've used escharotic therapy. So Siggy Ein, who died um, a couple of years ago, had uh, a very long experience using silver sulfadiazine, uh, which is um, silvadine that's what's used for burn dressings and uh, he had been using that for many years and I adopted that practice because he was my teacher 
And we published a, a long-term follow-up of, of those patients uh, a few years ago. Um, and basically, we it's like any other escharotic therapy. You, you, uh, you paint the seal with it, and uh, it forms an eschar, and then it eventually epithelializes. And then uh, once the child is in better shape to have it closed, um, then you can go back and, and repair it just like a... Uh, like any other large ventral hernia repair, right? Um, a couple of couple of things about that. So, the and by the way, that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. And right. you said you wait till they're about a year, and I yep. I would say that the length of time I wait is entirely dependent on um, the specifics of that child. So there are some kids where the defect is quite large, and as you uh, as you're waiting for it to epithelialize, it, it actually uh, reduces itself to a large extent. So I've had some of them where I could go back in uh, even at six or eight months of age mm-hmm. and do do the repair. On the other side of it, I've had some kids who were premature, had bad hearts or whatever, where I've had to wait until they're uh, much older, you know, three or four years of age, till their hearts have been fixed and their, or their lungs have grown with, from their pulmonary hypoplasia. And... Uh, and and so it takes a lot longer. The other technical point about those kids is that the ones who have the mushroom-shaped nonphalocele, those will never reduce on their own. They mm-hmm. just stay big. And so in in some of those kids, what we've done is gone gone in and enlarged the abdominal wall defect, just as a first step. Um, just make an incision uh, at the bottom, at the lower edge of it, and uh, just open up the fascia. And uh, then just close the skin again and uh, uh, allow it to do some more spontaneous reduction before we go in there to try and do something surgical. So you, and you do that at several months of age? Once, once it's, it's epithelial. completely epithelialized. Got yeah, it. So That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I know I, I've seen a couple of those, not myself, but people have sent those pictures in and said, what do I do? Yeah. So that's a good tip. It's a very challenging situation. Just one trick that I learned from Phil Gazetta. Uh, when I do go in, uh, I think he calls it, I think there was even a paper that, that I should find the title uh, and the author, but it's called the flip-flop, which is somewhat a, a modification of a component separation. Is At a year of age, I go in, I open the skin through the midline. I free up the, the lateral edges of the muscle, and I incise laterally, going up and down, basically going superior to inferior, pretty lateral down. So you're basically dividing only the anterior sheath. And then you can fold it over. And so you're basically, you fold it over because it's attached to the lower, uh, the the posterior sheath. So basically you divide laterally, you fold it over, so you, you sew it together and you have just one big posterior sheath. You have nothing anteriorly and that's how I've closed them. That's interesting. I've never done that. I know there are some papers now uh, about components, like formal component separation, right. like they do in adults. I've always been very um, worried about doing that. I've I've asked uh, one of our plastic surgeons, who used to be an adult surgeon and worked in a big trauma center, so he'd done tons of those. Asked him if he would help me do one in a smaller kid, and he said, "No, nah, I don't think that's a good idea because <laughs> you know it's a big operation, and if if it gets screwed up or devascularized or whatever, you're in a worse." shape than before. But there are, I, I know there are people that are doing it and uh, they've, they've published it. So uh, I think it's definitely an option. Right. What, I, what I find when you're closing these is that a lot of times the defect extends right up to the costal margin. Um, and you can't close that upper part of the defect mm-hmm. if, if, because you can't, you can't right. close the costal margin. So in those patients, I usually close the inferior part of the defect and then I put a patch Yep. in the upper part. And I've used a number of different things for that patch. We we used Surgesis for a long time, um, but uh, probably 50% of them, uh, it it didn't really right. do the job. And so I had to go back. And, but, and, and, and it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, you can go back and put a piece of proline mesh or something non-absorbable in there. Um, what we've been using more recently is Stratus. And I, I'm not sure I have a long enough follow-up yet to comment whether it's better than the surgicis. Yeah. But you know, uh, this I think that uh this whole topic of meshes and different materials we we need to have a separate podcast on because right. it's something that we don't do that often in kids and there's probably a lot of new meshes out there that we should be familiar with. 
Yeah, that's probably correct. There's the issue uh, with omphalocels. You know, sometimes it's part of it's part of the uh, pentalogy of Cantrell. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we've had some kids who uh, who have ten, some of the, who have may have uh, missing pericardium or um, probably the most common one is a foramen of Morgagni hernia associated with the uh, with the omphalocele and those omphalocele tend to be the ones that are a little more superiorly placed um, so there's some controversy about what you should do about that what's the best timing of repair of the Morgagni hernia um, and. Most of these pentalogy of Cantrell kids have some kind of cardiac problem as well. So what I've tended to do is uh, is treat them with escharotic therapy because they have a cardiac problem. And um, when the when the cardiac surgeons go in to fix the heart, uh, a lot of times we'll just put a patch in the diaphragm uh, from above uh, through the sternotomy. And then and then later, once the child is recovered from the cardiac surgery and is optimized from an anesthetic point of view, then we'll go back and and deal with the abdominal wall defect. Yeah, I think that's a safe approach. So now you have a child and, and uh, you have not yet fixed their omphalocele. They have a large omphalocele and they have severe gastroesophageal reflux. Right. How do you, how do you manage that? It's a very, it's a very difficult problem uh, because uh, reflux is very common in these kids and uh, a lot of them don't eat normally, especially if they've got a bad heart or they've got pulmonary hypoplasia. Uh, but putting a, a G-tube in a kid with a giant omphalocele that's undergoing escharotic therapy can be pretty challenging. Right. We are very lucky uh, in our hospital that we have uh, excellent interventional radiologists. So what we usually do with these kids is ask the radiologist to put a G-tube in uh, under fluoroscopy, and they can usually find a window lateral to the defect. Um, they they put an NG tube down into the stomach and blow it up with air, and they can usually find a spot uh, laterally that they can put a G tube in. And then after that has matured, they'll uh, put a GJ tube in so we can feed the child even though the child has bad reflux. So that's the way we've generally done it. And I, I think if you didn't have that kind of interventional radiology, you still could probably uh, surgically put a, a G-tube in and do the same thing. Doing a fund application in a child who's still got a big defect, um, I, I think, is, is is extremely difficult. The the liver in omphalocele babies tends to be midline, and uh, trying to get access to the hiatus uh, is is almost impossible in in some of these babies, especially if they've got cardiac disease and uh, you know their liver's congested a lot of the time. It's just it's just impossible to get back there. So I think, uh, in my opinion, is a GJ tube is a much better way of dealing with it in the short term. And then what I've what I've often done uh, when when they finally get to the point where you're fixing their abdominal wall defect and and they're medically optimized, in at that time as I'm fixing the defect, I'll I'll go in and do the fund application. It's a great. I love that approach. We've discussed that here a bunch, and I think that's a a, a great uh, safe approach. Yeah. The other thing to to uh, to remember is that some of these babies with a big omphalocele, because the mid, the liver is midline, sometimes the liver actually puts pressure on the duodenum or on the pylorus, and sometimes so sometimes they actually have a, a mechanical obstruction to their gastric outlet, and that can be uh, making the reflux a lot worse. Not not much you can do about it actually, but it's worth uh, just doing a contrast study to uh, to make that diagnosis if. Uh, make sure that that's that you know about it if it's there. Right. Do you feel the need to do any sort of LADS procedure for the non-rotation? No, I um, I don't think non-rotation is a problem because right. uh, it it doesn't it's not associated with a risk of uh, midgut volvulus. So most of these kids do have non-rotation rather than malrotation, and uh, I don't think you need to do anything about it if you feel like it and you're in the neighborhood, then, you know, doing an inversion appendectomy, I guess, would make some sense if you're a person that does appendectomies uh, in a lab procedure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have seen several children later in life who had an omphalocele, 
uh, and developed perforated appendicitis that was uh, delayed in the diagnosis because of the uh, abnormal location of, the, of the appendix. <laughs> so that does happen. And, uh, and so if you are there in the neighborhood and you see the appendix, uh, then you can do an inversion appendectomy without increasing the infection risk. And right. I, I, I'm a believer in that. With the proviso that if the child has any kind of renal abnormality, which on fallacial babies may certainly have, where they might need a metrofenoff, yeah, leave uh, then, then leave the appendix in. Fair enough. When you go in to do your uh, early reduction in a patient with the liver is out, um, don't you find that you can get kinking of the hepatic vessels? I haven't had a problem with kinking of the hepatic vessels, but you, but they are very superficial. So if when you're doing the repair or even the dissection of the, of the fascia, uh, if, if you're not really careful, you can actually uh, injure the hepatic veins because yeah. they're sitting right there under the fascia. So I always make a point when I'm doing one of these with the fellow of, uh, of watching carefully for those vessels. I haven't had a, a problem with, uh, with kinking of the hepatic veins during a reduction, and I think part of the reason for that is that I use intra-abdominal pressure monitoring, and and uh, you know, I, and I'm not too aggressive about trying to reduce it. If I'm starting to get pressures above 20, then I then I back off. And when you, I want to make sure we hit on this. When you do your immediate reduction, you usually can get the fascial edges together. Uh, at the bottom, uh, yes. At the top, often not. And so I'll put a patch in. Okay, uh, and, and that's where you're talking about using surgesis, which fails half the time. Or yeah. Maybe, okay. Yeah, and then, uh, or even you know, I've had some where I can get it get it partially uh, reduced, and uh, but it's you know there's still a bunch of liver at the top end that's sticking out. So what I'll sometimes do is just sew a just sew a piece of um, you know Gore-Tex or something on there, or a piece of Silastic, um, and close the skin over top of that. Mm-hmm. And then go back in, you know, in a week or two, uh, take out the piece of plastic, and and sometimes that by that time, you know, everything has uh, is is in better, and uh, things have stretched out, and you can and you can close the fascia. I'm sure lots of different options for this. Probably an entire podcast on just how to get that fascia closed. Um, yes. But uh, this has been a very uh, thorough discussion of two very complicated uh, disorders that that we see quite a bit. And uh, as always, you handle, you, you, you enlighten us. So uh, I love talking to you, Jack. I love that you participate in all these events and you share your knowledge with the rest of the world. It's a great pleasure. I always learn something myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll hopefully be talking to you soon. Thanks so much. Okay, Todd. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. You can listen, watch, or read all content by downloading the Stay Current in Surgery app. Please send questions or comments to us at staycurrentpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.